0: i know you are i'm sorry i'm i'm just excited for the rest of the story i'm like oh
1: yeah no uh there's a lot of there's a lot of woo on this one what's it called not a railroad i'm doing the hand thing my hand is a dolphin nope a wave railroad but wave Ra- wavy railroad a roller coaster the story oh is a roller God. coaster
0: that's going in bloopers there's a cold open <laughs> a,
2: wavy a wavy railroad
0: road <laughs>
1: What happens when you lose something you thought you'd always have? What happens when the thing you
2: lose is one of your senses? My name is Bette Klein, and I'm deaf. That wasn't the
1: case a year ago. Now that my life has been upended, I have to figure out how to carve out a new path for myself and navigate my way down it. Easier said than done. Seen and Not Heard, an audio drama about hearing loss and deaf gain, is available wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to Pomegranates and Pitchforks. This is a true crime and horror podcast that brings true stories and not so true stories together in beautiful and disturbing harmony. I'm your host, Alexandria Young Ray, with my lovely co-host Sunshine Bellon. What up, dudes? Dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. Yeah. <laughs> so today we're doing Annie, Miss Annie Chapman. Mm-hmm. And hers is the saddest story. So sad, or so yeah. I've
0: heard repeatedly leading up to this recording. I know recording. I keep
1: just telling you how sad it is. <sighs> so I mean, you know, yeah. I kind of talked to you about this a while back, where it's like all of these women's stories are sad. We're talking about how somebody ended up as a poor woman in Whitechapel, like
0: yeah, no, no story that ends that way, Ir- irrespective of murder. That's not a good story.
1: Everybody came to her 14th birthday. And she was the prom queen, and then she uh died happily of old age, surrounded by her loving children and grandchildren. In Whitechapel. In Whitechapel.
3: Yeah,
1: no. Nope. Nope. That's uh that's not the stories we're telling. <sighs>
3: Maybe so. one day.
1: One day? No. I don't know. I don't know if we tell those stories in this podcast. Yeah, I don't think so either. I'm very sorry. So, let's talk Annie Chapman. All right, let's talk Annie Chapman. Annie Chapman was born Annie Eliza Smith, died Annie Chapman. She was born September 1841 and lived till September 8th, 1888. So, let's get into it. Well, let's. All right so background of her parents in 1834 annie's father george smith joined the queen's lifeguard at age 15 which was too young but he was gung-ho so they let him in all right get it you know how old yeah. military stories are how old military um, dudes
0: like all right well sure kid have a musket yep
1: have a musket and uh the queen's lifeguard they were cavalry troops but they kind of serve a role like the british secret service okay so like the foot soldiers are the are the super infamous ones with the ridiculous top hats that make it look like they're little red toy soldiers with a microphone helmet yep yep uh the cavalry soldiers look a lot less ridiculous that's good i mean that helmet would be kind of
0: absurd to try and ride a horse in
1: yeah for sure He most likely met 22-year-old Ruth Chapman in 1840 uh, while serving during Queen Victoria's marriage on February 10th. Oh, how nice. So we're going all the way back to the marriage of Queen Victoria. You know, he would have been there because he was in the Queen's lifeguard. Right. Military men had a tendency to attract the attention of young serving girls. Literally because
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> dashing uniform, strapping young gentlemen.
0: I know when I read that, I was just like, "Oh my god, Alex,
1: you're such a cornball!"
0: Dashing uniforms, but it's true. Dashing uniforms, it's true.
1: That's a thing. I mean, the 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 dress uniform for military. I don't. I. It's pretty all right. Yeah. Is it like? Is it specifically designed to make them look sexy? Like what the fuck? <laughs>
0: I think so. I think, I, well, I think that's just a whole kind of melange of different cultural programming, and like,
1: yeah, that's that's what, probably some kind of thing. weird way that I have been socialized. But like, yeah. but like, damn, you know what I'm talking about? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with the feeling. <laughs> yeah. So the the British military at this time discouraged marriages of enlisted men.
0: Yeah, well, fair enough. I guess you're not going to want to give your life to the crown if you're, like, worried about your wife and children.
1: Yeah, I guess that's what it was. It was super, super weird. But literally only six out of every hundred enlisted men were permitted to marry. Whoa. Yeah. And they worked with fairly low wages, which meant that servicemen found it difficult to purchase their sexual services. Okay. Okay. So they could not buy
0: prostitute time.
1: Yep. So, that said, monogamous premarital relationships were low-key encouraged by the military. Because these relationships, you know, if they were monogamous, they meant that servicemen were catching fewer communicable diseases or STIs they remained legally unattached and they could get their jollies off without spending <sighs> more than the cost of taking his lover out on the town now and then okay yeah great so they were encouraged good for them to do, d- do that instead of marriage or prostitution here's where we get the super fun double standard because this series is just be bad about sexism the series well yeah because that's totally unfair Uh, uh. While this relationship provided well for servicemen, uh, it put the unmarried women in some serious predicaments. Really? Yeah. Shocking. Because unmarried mothers were fizzucked in Victorian England. Right. Go figure. So, by January 1941, Ruth was pregnant. Of course she would be and annie eliza smith was born in september 1941 although the day is unknown likely because of her illegitimacy they probably like recorded it but didn't record it you know right they're just like eh, she was born right here so ruth became what is known as a dolly mop which is the name for a soldier's woman that's nice I don't, I feel like I don't like that already. So, Dolly Mops were permitted to live with or near their paramours at camp or in the barracks and would earn their keep by helping with reproductive labor tasks like washing laundry or sewing.
3: Mm hmm.
1: It, like, that just kind of shows, like, how oddly commonplace this was. Yeah, there's like, oh, it's totally fine. Yeah. That there was just this, like, weird bubble where this double standard was okay. Yeah, acceptable, unacceptable premarital arrangement that was allowed. Yeah, that's so weird. Ruth's predicament became even more unstable five months after Annie's birth when she found herself again with child. Oh no. So luckily, George and Ruth were permitted to marry on February 20th, 1842 and... They received the kindness of having their marriage backdated by two years in George's military records. Oh, that's good, I guess, for them. <laughs> yeah, which made the Smith family legitimized. So Annie was magically unbastardized. <laughs> Yay, Annie. <laughs> so Annie had a handful of younger siblings. Uh, George William Thomas was the first in 1842, Emily Letitia in 1844. Eli in 1849 Miriam in 1851 and William in 1954 Jesus Christ yeah and that's just that first handful of kids we're gonna be listing off more (laughs) oh wow
2: okay that's
1: just that's just this section of children so (sighs) life as a military family had its costs and benefits At the time of Annie's birth, the military gave no special housing to families, Mm -hmm. which was awkward because they were expected to share the same communal bunking of a barracks and just sort of separate their little area out by sheets and blankets.
0: That's terrible.
1: Yeah. Like, I mean, we've talked about how, like, families lived in in these just like super super unprivate houses but like yeah. when you're sharing your unprivate family house with a bunch of like 20-year-old dudes yeah that's not something that i would want at all nope nope no thank you <laughs> so conditions were unsanitary and large groups of young adult men are not the best influences on children go figure let's be real However, the military offered stability, savings plans, access to health care, and finally, in 1848, a stipend was given to military families, enabling them to live off base. So around when Annie was seven? Okay. The biggest benefit to military families was access to the regimental school, more than 20 years before the British implemented mandatory schooling.
3: Hmm. Okay. Okay
1: so military children got educated so schooling for soldiers children was required and this was amusingly at least in part meant to counter the negative influence of growing up around military men oh my god like in particular they hoped that women like the the little girls that they were raising uh-huh. would not be raised with such masculine habits as drinking or swearing oh dear (laughs) because god So, so like it's really interesting like looking at this stuff from like the modern age that we live in right now because i feel like there's just like a whole movement of zoomers just trying to absolutely break down what gender even means and i am here for it i'm cool Mm -hmm. i'm cool with that y'all non-binary folk identify as whatever the fuck you want hells yeah kill the patriarchy absolutely smash it with a hammer but like Looking at, like, what was feminine and what was masculine and, like, the way that the gender roles had to be in Victorian England coming from, like, this modern perspective is just... (laughs) It's so... Like, literally stuff like swearing and drinking was a masculine trait.
0: Well, yeah. It just shows how, like, confining it probably was to be a woman then.
1: Yeah. It also shows how many gendered traits are just socialized yeah you know like like the the literally the idea that like women are better at linguistic skills and men are better at spatial skills is Mm because literally little girls are talked to more as kids and are taught to like learn emotional uh intelligence so that they could communicate their feelings and little boys are taught to like play with legos yeah Only work on your spatial reasoning. (laughs) Like, literally, we are socialized from a young age to be better in these areas. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that's one one rant on sexism of, I'm sure, many this episode. I'm sure many (laughs) as well, yes. And episodes going forward, let's be honest. So, Annie's family moved regularly while George served, as most military families do. Mm Mm-hmm. Luckily, the family never had to deal with foreign postings, but from 1840 to George's retirement from the military in the early 1860s, the family moved at least 12 times between London and Windsor.
0: Ugh, that's too many times.
1: Yeah, just just kind of constantly in a new place. Which I, I'm sure that a lot of military brats or military folks that listen to this podcast will be like, "Yeah, yeah, like that's nothing, <laughs> I'm sure." <laughs> Annie, because of the nature of her father's position, Annie lived this really strange life straddled between the aristocracy and the laboring class
3: because
1: mm-hmm. her father's wa- her father was a queen's guard.
3: Right. So Annie okay. lived
1: near the wealthy. And would have seen uh, titled men and women in their fine clothes, living their lives of luxury on a near daily basis. She lived right next to them. And her education from the uh, soldier's school uh, would have made her able to present herself in a more prestigious way. Mm -hmm. Would have made it easier for her to appear as if she came from a good family. Right. To seem wealthy. Mm-hmm. But a soldier's salary was meager. And ultimately, many of the places the family lived were these crowded d- dwellings shared with multiple other families.
0: Right. So even though they got a stipend for housing, it's not like they really got that great of housing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They were still absolutely in the, like, poverty laboring class. Hmm. So she got these glimpses of luxury every single day, but she couldn't reach it. Mm-hmm. And that, that kind of runs like an underlying current throughout her story is this reaching for, for respectability. Uh, I can identify with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair. This next section. There is not an easy way to introduce this part. It just sucks. Remember when we were talking about how the human lifespan has basically been capable of reaching between 80 and 100 years since forever? Yeah. But the facts of poverty brought the average life expectancy down because young people died? Right, right.
0: Brought the average down for everyone.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So there were people living into their 80s. It's just that there were a fuckload of infant mortality. Right, right. And a bunch of five-year-olds dying is going to bring down those handful of 80-year-olds to, you know, a 40 or 30-year life expectancy. Right. So, in 1854, the Smiths shared housing with at least two other families. And in late spring of that year, London began experiencing an epidemic of Scarlatina, or Scarlet Fever. Oh, great. And... While scarlet fever usually impacted the laboring class most harshly, this was bad enough that wealthy folks were also losing multiple children to this disease. Oh wow! So it was it was just rampaging through London. Right.
0: This was during the same time when they would like throw their shit out of windows, right? Yeah,
1: okay. this was a very unclean period of human history. Okay, just clarifying, especially in London. Yeah. Like, uh, in the summer, and this is spring, so it's becoming summer, literally, disease was just absolutely rampant because bacteria could fester in still water. Right, okay, gross. And they had no decent irrigation for their streets. Gross. Other than hoping for the rain.
0: mm don't like it.
1: And the Scarlet Fever epidemic was made worse when a second epidemic of typhus hit London I can love typhus so scarlet fever is usually a pediatric illness it usually only affects and kills children Mm -hmm. but typhus kills children and adults impartially everybody die so both diseases cause impressively high fevers and rashes that spread across the body which is, you know, where scarlet fever comes from. Right. Fever with a red ratch. Which is turning red. Oh, that's awful. So this part sucks. By mid-May, both diseases had reached the same street as the Smiths. Hmm. Annie would have been responsible for taking care of her toddler sister, two and a half-year-old Miriam, as her mother Ruth, would have still been preoccupied with her newborn William. The Smiths would first have learned of the tragedy about to strike the family when a rash appeared on Miriam. Mm. Her sickness came quickly, as did her death. Uh. Miriam died May 28th and was buried the next day. Shortly after Miriam struck ill, so did infant William. He died only five days later on June 2nd, Uh. at only five months old. Uh. Five-year-old Eli died seven days after his youngest brother. George Thomas, the family's eldest son at age 12, lay dying for most of this experience. He suffered three weeks before finally passing away on June 15th. Of six children, only two remained, Annie and Emily. Wow.
0: So that just, like, immediately ravaged their whole family in, what, like, a month?
1: Yeah. Yeah. In the span of a month, like, literally one kid a week. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah just I, (sighs) cause cause something like this happened in Polly's life and something like this is going to happen in future stories, you know, sickness just happens. And sometimes it will absolutely ravage a family in these stories from Victorian England. But I cannot imagine the trauma of losing four out of six children In the span of a month. Like, not in one big accident, but just one after the other while you're literally trying to take care of them. Right, that's uh, undeniably worse than in one big accident, for sure. Like, that's a whole month of just... Oh, such intense stress and trauma.
0: Yeah, just suffering and
1: sadness. Yeah, so um, I highly doubt anyone in the Smith family walked away without PTSD. Well, yeah. (laughs) and honestly i think that that comes back in uh the rest of this story i think that that tragedy haunts the smith family so time continues and ruth had another child two years later georgina in 1856 then in 1858 miriam ruth Mm -hmm. miriam again yeah that's a little And weird. in 1861, their final child was born, Fontaine Hamilton. Wow. Named after two important men that George had served okay. under. So by this point, Annie was a teenager. Uh, 15 was generally considered the age when a girl's education was done. Ooh. And she was expected to enter into full-time work. Wow. Okay. So Emily was old enough to help with the younger children. And Annie was free to leave the family home. At this time, options for a girl like Annie were factory or domestic labor. And factory work sucked more.
0: Yeah, I mean, of (laughs) course. And
1: domestic work provided skills for her future as a wife and mother, since that was the end goal for any woman. Right, that was
0: like her only option, so... That was... Might as well get good at it. The thing
1: that she was aiming for... So, you know, domestic work was preferable for somebody like Annie. Which actually, super common. Between 1851 and 1891, over 40% of Britain's girls aged 15 to 20 entered domestic service. Wow, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah, it was just what you did. I, I mean, we literally talked about in last episode, how Polly didn't enter domestic service because she had to take care of her family home. Like, the fact that she didn't go and be a domestic worker was more notable. Yeah, that's... Okay, fair point. Yep. So, by 1861, Annie was working for William Henry Luer, although it's unknown if this was her first job. Okay. How? Because... I think she left home late 1850s. Okay, So so we don't know if this was her first employer or not. Uh She shared duties with her fellow housemaid, Eleanor Brown, and the housekeeper, Mary Ford. The three of them literally only tended to 67-year-old William and his brother, Edward. Wow. Three servants, two dudes. Yeah. The thing is, the smaller job actually meant more work. A household full of servants would have, like, you know, a maid that did this, and a maid that did that, and a maid that did that, whereas servants in these small households were sometimes called maids of all work, because literally all of the duties were their duties. Okay. Because, you know, you still need to sweep the floor in a large house and a big house, and you still need to light the fires, and you still need to make the beds, and you need need to make dinner and clean up, and blah blah blah. Right, right, right.
3: Okay, I see it.
1: So... Annie would likely have not seen uh, very much of her family. Hmm. Not only were they no longer physically near, but a domestic worker was given time off at the discretion of her employer, which was often one day or even half of a day a month. Oh, my God. And an hour for church on Sundays. Wow. And that was just status quo for a domestic worker at the time. Like indentured
0: servitude. Kind of, yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: <sighs> okay, well.
1: And this is why I've become a fucking dirty commie. Yeah, well, fair <laughs> enough. So, we're gonna kind of bounce back and forth a little bit in the story. I'm trying to keep it linear, but there's some stuff that just sort of... Okay, fair yeah. enough. Sometimes you gotta do that. We can handle it. So, meanwhile... meanwhile... <laughs> George was getting older and had to begin considering work outside of the military. You can be career military, but let's be real. He wasn't raising up in the ranks because he was just a poor soldier.
0: Right. And for soldiers, like military retirements weren't
1: a thing or anything like that? Kind of they were, but but that's one of the reasons that he would have been considering a retirement. Right. Okay. So, George had four distinguishing marks for good conduct, which made him a good candidate for becoming a valet for a commanding officer.
3: Okay.
1: So, a valet is a man's personal attendant.
0: Oh, I a see. A gentleman's gentleman. Oh, I remember this. A gentleman's yeah,
1: gentleman. Yeah. He takes care of everything, he is at the very top of the hierarchy of servants. Uh, think Wooster and Jeeves. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
1: Jeeves is a valet. Okay. So, that would have been where George started. He would have still been in the military, but he would have been kind of phasing out. Okay.
0: By becoming a valet. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. And in 1856, he became a valet to war hero Roger William Henry Palmer. And then in 1861, he became valet to Captain Thomas Naylor Leyland.
0: Naylor Leyland, okay. And
1: Leyland liked George enough that when he decided to marry and leave military service, he asked George to accompany Hmm. him. And a personal valet could expect to earn 25 to 50 pounds a year, along with his military pension of one shilling, one and a half pence a day. Okay. So this option was actually the best life a middle-aged laborer could offer his family okay
0: yeah that puts it in so, perspective a little bit i always struggle with the whole pounds and shillings especially in the late 1800s And like i don't what, yeah nope. for
1: real yeah but basically as far as like future career prospects and providing for his family this was a really solid deal for him yeah best option so in 1862, George left military service to fully become a civilian domestic valet.
0: Valet, mm-hmm.
1: valet. So, this is uh, this is where the stories kind of, you know, kind of kind of come together. So, as a domestic worker, George would have also been estranged from his family the way Annie was. Mm-hmm. As he would have been expected to live away from home and would receive very few days off. But as a valet was his personal attendant for his master, mm-hmm. they had a lot of free time when not tending their employer. Okay. So for the first time in his life, George lacked both the support and the distraction provided by his family and his regiment. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm pretty sure that there was some mad PTSD going through the Smith family after, you know, scarlet fever and typhoid, typhus, Mm -hmm. wiped out two thirds of the kids. Yeah. So uh, in George's spare time, he took up, Drinking. Well, that's just
0: nice. That's going to ruin everything, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, in 1863, Captain Leyland agreed to steward a grand horse race set to take place on June 13th. Leyland stayed in the officers' quarters while George shared a room with another of Leyland's staff at the pub, The Elephant and Castle. And this is super weird. Apparently, there is just an area in London that is called Elephant and Castle.
0: The Elephant and Castle. All
1: right. Yeah. If there's any um, British folk that know London, could y'all hit us up? What the fuck is that shit? (laughs) Really? Huh. All right. It's actually, like, really close to Whitechapel. It's just, like, below it. And there's this little circle. And that's the Elephant and Castle. Anyway, moving on. So... On the morning of the race, June 13th, between 7 and 8 a.m., George's roommate called out to him to remind him of the time. And hmm. George responded, It's all right, I'm not asleep. Although he didn't make any motions to get out of bed. After an hour when no one had seen George, the landlady went up to check on him and found him dead on the floor with his throat cut open by a razor.
2: Hmm.
3: That's
1: kind of weird. The razor found next to him. Yeah. So,
2: Mm.
0: poor George, who was probably under so much pressure. So depressed, I'm sure.
1: In order to ensure the race was not interrupted, the coroners rushed a report. The verdict, suicide by cutting his throat with a razor while laboring under temporary insanity. And Leyland made it to the horse races. Although he did pay George's funeral expenses, so thanks, Leyland. But it's just one of those like Oh, well, that's fucked up. <laughs> that's nice, I guess. And it, it probably it probably was suicide, it probably wasn't murder, but you know, just the fact that it was rushed. Yeah. You know, just like guys, that's that's kind of fucked.
0: <laughs> yeah, is like ridiculous.
1: Ordinarily, this situation would have left his family big fucked a widow was not entitled to claim her husband's military pension at the time. So even that one shilling one and a half pence a day would have been out the window. Oh, so stupid. As well as his actual yeah. salary. And if you recall, all of the male children died. So the oldest male <laughs> child was two year old Fontaine. Yep, okay who's not going to be bringing in for the family.
0: The big bucks anytime (laughs) soon.
1: But Ruth was small part lucky, big part clever. It's possible. So this was like not an uncommon thing for like the wealthy to kind of throw a little bit of like pity money to a widow of their employee.
0: Right, we talked about that a little bit before. Like There's the, just
1: some weird social etiquette. Uh, that's very Victorian-specific charity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So it's entirely possible that Leyland gave some here-sorry-about-your-loss money to Ruth, and also okay. whatever the family had saved up. Within a year, Ruth invested what little money they had, And leased a home that the family had actually once occupied uh, before during better times. And she rented out the extra rooms to lodgers and with a basement scullery, likely took extra work doing laundry and was able to keep the family out of the workhouse. That's impressive. And the kids out of an orphanage. Good job, Ruth. Yeah. So, so yeah, Ruth became a landlady and probably took in extra work and probably her daughters took in extra work, but, you know, women's labor.
0: Right, of course.
1: Uh but the 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 landowning made it so that the family could stay out of utter doom and gloom,
0: all the big bads.
1: And one lodger was John Chapman. This man A coach driver with a modest beginning as a stable assistant. John and Annie met somehow through him, you know, being a lodger at her mother's house and developed a courtship.
3: Okay.
1: And Annie, at the ripe old age of 27, just absolutely ancient.
0: Oh, shut up. Having
1: spent her eligible years of domestic (laughs) work knew better than to turn down the opportunity to become a wife and mother. Okay, well, get it, Annie. So, the two married May 1st, 1869, at All Saints Church in Knightsbridge, where Annie had attended mm-hmm. service since her childhood. Uh, two amusing things. John was born in 1844, which made Annie three years his senior. Ooh, lo scandal. Oh, dang, Annie. And also, Annie married into the same name As her mother's maiden name.
0: Oh, that's funny. So. Hopefully they weren't related.
1: I actually think that they were expressly not related. I think that that was one of the things that was kind of notable about. But, but yeah. Okay. Later that same May, John and Annie Chapman went to a professional photographer to commemorate their marriage. And this photograph is in the outline. Neither of them look very happy. Well, Victorian photos. Yeah, you have to stand very still, I know. You have to stand still so they didn't really smile. The notable thing about this is that while the two could have bought a small portrait for five shillings, which was a more common and affordable option for the laboring class, instead they went for a cabinet photograph, which is a portrait size intended for framing and typically placed on a mantel in a middle class parlor. Oh, So it's likely that the couple intended this photograph to represent their hopes for a better future for their new family. Oh, that's sweet and sad. Reaching up.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Like I said, Annie, she was always so close to luxury. So I think I think she I think she kind of longed for it. Yeah, well, of course, how could you not? Yeah, for real. Especially in like Victorian England, where you've the got, bad like, is so bad. Yeah, the, oh. poverty is down the fuck here, and like aristocracy is like way the fuck up here, and it's like yeah, like I want that? <laughs> <laughs> it's right there. I can see it. <laughs> so, as the daughter of a valet, her husband's career as a coachman was similar. Yeah, we see that marrying your dad again. Yep.
0: Well, I think that's just weird and profoundly true for so many cultures.
1: It's true. (laughs) Yeah. So, John would sit near the top of the servants hierarchy and be paid fairly well. 35 to 80 pounds a year plus tips, which was actually even better than her dad would have been making as a personal valet. Okay. So, however... He would have more independence than an average domestic worker. He wouldn't have been separated from the family. Mm. As a married man, his family would be expected to live near or above the stables so he could watch over the horses and vehicles. So basically, the family was brought with him. Okay. And he might live rent-free or receive an allowance for lodging nearby, and he'd be provided clothing for the job. Oh. So... Basically, Annie's life was, like, beginning to almost touch the life of aristocracy. She's almost there. Her her husband was a domestic worker, but he was, like, at the top of the domestic workers. Right, just so close. He was making decent money and working for the fancy folk who could afford him. So close. (laughs) So, So close. For the first eight years of their marriage, John and Annie uh, stayed in London, stayed living in London. Mm-hmm. John made enough that Annie could occasionally make special purchases, but the work in London would be inconsistent.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: most The most stable option for the Chapmans would have been a permanent position with a family outside of London, because working in London, your work kind of comes and goes, whereas working for one family you know you've got job security. Right, that makes sense. And likely part of why they stayed so long in London was due to Annie's reluctance to part with her mother and sisters. She was very, very bonded with the remaining living of her relatives. Yeah, like, fair enough. (laughs) Fair. Literally, when Annie was pregnant with her first child in 1870, when she was, like, getting ready to give birth – Instead of asking her mother to come to her home, she returned to her mom's home to give birth there. Yeah, okay. Like, mad type. You know, very close with the family, very, very attached to them. So, speaking of Annie's children, uh, Emily Ruth, named for the two most important women in Annie's life, her eldest sister and her mom, was born June 25th, 1870, and that was her first daughter. Uh, She was followed by a sister, Annie Georgina, in 1873. Annie also had her daughter's photographs (laughs) taken, and uh, those are also in the outline. In 1878, (laughs) Annie dressed 8-year-old Emily Ruth in her Sunday best and took her to a photographer, and then three years later, Annie repeated this with her now 8-year-old Annie Georgina, and they're wearing the same in her clothes, sister's aren't they? Hand me downs. Yeah. Oh, yes. sorry, <laughs> hand me downs. Come on, they're
0: perfect. Not yeah, like actually
1: identical. aristocracy. <laughs> yeah. What's cute about this is the two girls were positioned similarly, mm-hmm. with Emily Ruth facing the right and her younger sister facing the left. So on a mantle, they could sit with their gazes facing each other.
2: Oh, That's kind of nice.
1: Yeah, that was probably the the goal. But yeah, that's that's Annie's daughters. And we will get more into that later.
0: Yeah, I feel like this is going to go badly.
1: Like, we're going to cute family. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> hmm So in 1879, John accepted a position as head coachman to a wealthy businessman, uh, Francis Tess Barry, with a huge country estate in Berkshire, close enough to see the Queen's Castle. So... And he was reaching for, like, any aristocracy. This dude, Francis Berry, he -hmm. was reaching for the top.
0: Okay.
1: He he started as a relatively ordinary upper class man, middle upper class man, but he slowly worked his way up the social ladder through business and industry. I think he had a, a mining business in Portugal or something and did some other things. His estate in Berkshire was part of this work, of climbing that giant grand scheme social ladder. He had this grand mansion with like a bunch of different rooms and like some of them were decorated with like the modern, you know, Victorian style. And like some of them were like decorated with like a Japanese style because that was in vogue at the time. And at this mansion, he held parties with dukes, earls, countesses, and even the Prince of Wales. Wow. Okay. So big fancy pants. Big fancy pants. Really, really reaching for the tippity-top. John would have been the head of a team of servants meant to tend the stables, and as the driver of his master's coach, John would be responsible for representing his employer any time he went out.
0: Okay, so he's pretty
1: important. So John's respectability was almost as important as Barry's respectability. Right, yeah. Yeah, I can-
0: That makes and of that, sense. And
1: that- comes up again later
2: of course it does
1: (laughs) everything comes up again we don't live in a vacuum
2: that's how these (laughs) stories
1: always go (laughs) so the Chapmans moved into the Coachman's Cottage a home larger and with more amenities than Annie would have ever experienced before oh Annie and she had her parlor with her mantle to put her wedding photograph and her children's photographs that's so nice Annie's reach into middle-class life was that much closer, and she was proud of it, possibly to a little bit of grandiosity. Okay. For example? in So in 1881, Annie took her daughters to visit Ruth back in London, and it was like a pretty long visit. Mm-hmm. And this just happened to coincide with the 1881 census. Okay. So John, back in Berkshire, listed his occupation, occupation as... Coachman, domestic servant. While Annie in London listed herself as the wife of a stud groom, uh. so it's possible that John was responsible for the purchase of and breeding of horses, possibly even racing horses. But like a stud groom at this time was like was like this guru, like he was the fancy pantsest of all of the domestic workers. And I don't think he was really considered a common commodity. Like, it wasn't every rich person had a stud groom.
0: Right, right. A stud groom was somebody that, like, maybe would not be in high society, but certainly wasn't just anyone.
1: Like, a stud groom, while technically still a domestic servant, would have been higher than any of the other domestic servants due to their ability to create prize-winning racehorses. Right. Right like they were considered a, kind of a guru from the lower class so a stud groom would have been invited to the races and may have even mingled with other upper class people at dinners or gentlemen's parties right so fancy pants land probably not accurate for what he was considering John listed himself as coachman domestic probably
0: servant
1: probably not <laughs> it's probable that Annie was embellishing
0: oh yeah <laughs> probable even
1: yeah so for a while annie could have had her dream life she was comfortably middle class her husband was in a prestigious working position and making enough money to make the occasional superfluous fancy purchase her daughters were enrolled in a respectable school And this could have been a happy ending to a sad story. Except
0: for what, Alex? Except for
1: what? Except Annie struggled with alcoholism.
0: Oh, of course she did.
1: So even during these happier times that I was just talking about, Annie's life was still rife with tragedy. Great. So we don't really, we don't, we don't know the exact point when Annie developed Mm -hmm. alcoholism, it may have been after the death of her siblings when she was first placed in domestic work and separated from her family. That seems entirely Yeah, I could see
0: dealing with that with booze.
1: <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, it also may have been around the time of her father's death or maybe she picked up the habit from her father when he right, picked okay. up the habit. All things are
0: possible, huh?
1: It's unlikely but possible that it began after her marriage. But her sister Miriam once indicated that Andy's drinking problem began quote-unquote when she was quite mm, young
2: okay
0: so when her siblings died and
1: as pro- probably pro- i probably when she entered domestic work or she picked up picked it up from her father um and as we've talked about <clears throat> many times alcohol was super readily available in everyday victorian life right and annie had every goddamn reason to as self-dedicate
0: that sounds like a large uh, number of people in victorian era england yeah let's be real yeah
1: (laughs) so while working as a domestic servant and while reaching for upward social mobility annie would have been motivated to hide her alcoholism
0: well hell yeah she would have been
1: because uh, by the 1870s alcoholism was considered a problem of moral character and was fiercely looked down upon particularly in regards to women drinkers. of course like i was saying it's like literally considered a masculine trait alcoholic women were considered de-sexed.
0: De-sexed. That's awful. Literally.
1: It's super gross. It's super gross. At the same time, alcoholism was really common for middle-class housewives. With a husband at work and children at school. Right, and snake oil salesmen dropping off vodka. She would have been prone to (laughs) boredom and loneliness. And a common solution was to drink. So, again, according to Annie's sister Miriam... Annie actually had eight children. Oh. All of whom were victims of maternal drinking. Hmm. So, Emily Ruth appeared a normal, healthy child at birth. By the time she was eight, which was when that picture was taken, she began experiencing epileptic seizures. Oh. This likely at the time would not have been connected to her mother's alcoholism, but such disorders have since been connected to drinking while pregnant. Mm. After Emily Ruth, Annie gave birth to Ellen Georgina on March 5th, 1872. She only lived one day. Mm.
0: Infant mortality.
1: Annie Georgina was born the next year with what we can now recognize as the facial features of fetal alcohol syndrome. If you look at her picture, she's got the missing uh, lip ridge. Below her nose. Okay. And her brow is kind of flattened and her eyes are a little bit widened. Okay, yeah, I can see what you're talking about. Common fetal alcohol syndrome traits. Lovely. Oh, Annie. On April 25th, 1876, Annie gave birth to another daughter, Georgina, who lived only until May 5th. In November 1877, Annie gave birth to her first son, George William Harry who was born sickly and only lived 11 weeks. Oh, my God. On July 16th, 1879... Oh, it just keeps going. It keeps going. Miriam Lilly was born, but she only survived until October that same year. Annie's final child, John Alfred, was born November 21st, 1880, and he suffered from paralysis. Mm. This only accounts for seven children. But it's possible that Annie had a miscarriage or a stillbirth, which would not have been recorded. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense.
0: And her the, her two daughters did live, though.
1: Or no, one of them died at eight, and the other one. No, so so, so Emily Ruth mm-hmm. was the was the first picture, and at eight she started experiencing epileptic seizures. Okay, but she didn't die. From that, anyway. And then... um, Oh, okay. Your face. Okay, fine. I'm sorry. (laughs) And then Annie Georgina uh, was born with fetal alcohol syndrome. Right. And then also John Alfred was born with paralysis. Yeah, okay. And those are the three kids that lived past infancy.
0: Oh, joy of joys.
1: So... I love you. <laughs> I told you this was going to be yep, sad.
0: It's a good thing I have apple pie waiting for me in the kitchen.
1: You have apple pie. Yeah. So, even without modern medical understanding, it is entirely probable that Annie and her family recognized that drink was at the roots of Annie's maternal tragedies. <laughs> By 1878, scientists were publishing on the substantial evidence linking maternal drinking and infant health problems. Okay, yep. So by the time her last child was born, there were published papers out there about how don't drink while you're pregnant, (sighs) it could fuck up your kids. The the thing is, A, Annie was, like, a straight-up alcoholic. Like, she could not quit the drink. And also, most likely knowing that her drinking had caused her children's death and health problems... Yeah, that's
0: not going to help anything. ...would have
1: only pushed Annie further into despair and subsequently the bottle. Ugh. So... In 1881, Annie took that long visit to her mother in London... Her sisters, Emily, Letitia, and Miriam had set up a dressmaking shop from their home, and they had all converted to Presbyterian teetotalism.
0: Okay, so absolutely no drinking.
1: Absolutely no drinking. Abstinence from intoxicants was actually gaining traction among those reaching for middle class, Mm -hmm. as it literally enabled workers to put away money that would have gone to drink. Right, that's nice. That's helpful. Yeah. So... This was also during the rise of the popularity of self-help, which was this pretty problematic belief that things like poverty and alcoholism were caused by moral failures and pure will could overcome them.
0: Mm. Uh, Okay, great.
1: Which is honestly, like, that is some capitalist bullshit to, like, distract you from the real problem, but, like... Call me Alex, go to bed. We're in feminist land now. <laughs> <laughs> so, Emily, Letitia, and Miriam both signed the abstinence pledge, mm-hmm. and on several occasions, they managed to get Annie to sign the pledge as well. Annie really wanted to give up drinking,
3: mm-hmm.
1: but she just kept she just finding herself unable to. So. By autumn 1882, Annie had actually made a name for herself as a public drunk. Ugh. She wandered drunkenly between villages, not angry or even agitated, but melancholy and quiet. Ugh. She was a sad drunk. Oh, it's so bad. It's so sad. <laughs> And near the end of 1882, tragedy fell upon Annie once more when her eldest daughter, Emily, began experiencing a high fever and a spreading red rash in late Mm -hmm. November. Annie would have been reminded of the illnesses that overcame her family as a child. The doctors diagnosed Emily with meningitis, which presented similarly to scarlet fever and was similarly fatal. Great. As Emily's health waned, Annie withdrew further into the bottle. And on November 26, when Emily drew her last breaths, it was not Annie at her side, but a neighbor, Caroline Ellsbury, who signed the death certificate as a witness. That's heavy. Yep. On November 30th, the Chapmans buried their daughter, and Annie's sisters, Emily and Miriam, made an urgent visit to Spelthorne Sanatorium. On December 9th, 1882, Annie Chapman checked into this home for the intemperate of her own accord.
3: Hmm.
1: Her husband, John, would have handled the bill at 12 pence per week. So now she's essentially in rehab. She's in rehab. Annie goes to rehab. So, the Spellthorn Sanitarium was specifically catered to helping rehabilitate alcoholics, rather than punishing them through imprisonment. Hey, how great. It was actually a really... I, I think a decent program, a very solid progressive start to looking at addiction.
0: Well, I mean, the simple fact that they were getting treatment. Yeah, that's huge.
1: Yeah, it was a, it was I approve. <laughs> it may not have been perfect because, you know, it was Victorian England medicine and morality. But I think it was absolutely better than, you know, you suck, go to jail.
2: <laughs> right.
1: So this program focused on improving mind, body, and spirit. Patients attended chapel daily, and idleness was discouraged as it was thought to provide space for cravings to cultivate.
0: Which well, yeah. valid. Yeah, it kinda does. Let's be honest. Mm-hmm.
1: We literally like we've talked about this twice with the whole alcoholism thing. You get bored, you get lonely, you're isolated, you you're not doing anything. Drink.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So, patients worked in the garden or the laundry, and then were encouraged to read or do crochet or needlework in their downtime. You know, keep themselves busy. Busy, busy, busy. And after a sufficient amount of progress, patients would be slowly reintroduced to society through escorted outings. Okay. So, Annie committed to a year-long program and completed her time quietly. She was not one of those big screaming angry
0: screaming loonies i
1: don't belong here i don't belong here or even like who was angry about having the alcohol taken away? like she wasn't angry she was not an aggressive woman she was very passive
0: she's like yes this has to happen let's go
1: yeah i mean see also the fact that she was literally a sad drunk which is the saddest of all of the drunks obviously, obviously but like I'm just so sad that she was a sad drunk.
0: (laughs) Yeah, she could just never be happy.
1: (laughs) She could just never be happy. So, near the end of 1883, Annie returned to her home, to her family, sober and relatively happy. She actually managed to, like, be sober, and she was like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. But her sobriety was not long-lived. Ugh, poor Annie. So... You know, this is the winter one night, a few months after her return home, John developed a pretty severe cold, Mm -hmm. but his duty as a coachman required him to go out into the winter cold. So in order to fortify himself, he drank a glass of hot whiskey and then he kissed his wife goodbye. Uh oh. And apparently, Annie smelled the liquor on her husband's breath, and all of the cravings came back.
0: Well, yeah, that could happen.
1: And by the end of the night, Annie had returned to her old ways of drunken wandering, and according to her sister Miriam, Annie never tried again. That was, that was it. She was just like, I'm nope, done. I'm done. I am an alcoholic, I am a failure, I'm done.
0: That's so sad.
1: So, I talked about how John's respectability was important. Mm-hmm. John's employer had been lenient about Annie's public drunkenness, but as Francis Barry was reaching the higher rungs of social hierarchy, he couldn't afford to allow his head coachman's wife to be seen constantly publicly intoxicated. Right, of course not. It's likely that Annie's stay in Spelthorne was, in part, due to an ultimatum from the Berries.
0: Okay, yeah, get your wife under control or else.
1: Yeah, so this time John was given another ultimatum his drunken wife, or his job. Ugh. And John not only had Annie to consider, but his two living children, both with disabilities, one of them very severe. Oh, right, the paralyzed.
0: Just like, yeah, nope, can't move. There,
1: there was a paralyzed son who was not even 10. Ugh. So John couldn't afford to lose his job. So he sent Annie away to live with her mother in London. But included a maintenance of ten shillings a week, which I honestly I don't know. I feel mm. as if that really shows dedication to his wife. I don't think that he wanted to send her well, away. Well, I mean, and, and definitely when he did, he made sure that she was with family and she was taken care well,
0: of. Well, and ultimately it sounds like he was doing it so that he had money to take care of the kids, which is important.
1: Yeah. Like I think I think John was a well intentioned dude, you know? Yeah. I think he was trying to do right by his wife and his family. He just was kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: So Annie's stay with her family was even shorter lived than her sobriety after Spellthorn. Her mother and two (laughs) sisters were teetotalers and would not have approved of Annie's drinking. And when she came to live with them, she made it clear that, like, I'm still going to be drinking. I'm sorry. Yeah. But it's not... It's not just about, like, whether or not your family allows you to. Annie had to deal with the shame of her alcoholism and her relapse, as well as now the shame of her failing as a wife and mother. Right. Like we talked about with our previous lady. Mm-hmm. In the home of her family.
0: Yeah. No, thank you. So
1: ultimately, Annie chose to live with the freedom to drink rather than with her loved ones. <sighs> so... <sighs> Annie's sad. Yep. Annie's sad. Annie's transition from a comfortable middle class home in Berkshire to the slums of Whitechapel was not a natural course. Neither was her transition from her family home in Knightsbridge to the slums of Whitechapel, as there was plenty of slums, plenty of four penny beds. Between Knightsbridge and Whitechapel, most likely, Annie accompanied someone there. Okay. And most likely, this person was Jack Seavey. Oh. So, shortly after leaving her family home, Annie would have learned of the problems faced by a single impoverished woman.
0: Oh, shit, it's getting even more real, basically.
1: And she would have become more amenable to taking up with a man. hmm The way many women...
0: Had to. Had
3: to.
1: <laughs> yep. So Annie met Jack C Se- V, who was most likely called Jack Seavy because he literally made sieves for a living. Oh, that's
0: great. Yep. C V.
1: So they most likely... They, they probably met at a pub or a beer house, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, very little is known about this man. Beyond the the shared interest with Annie in drinking. Okay, then. And that it was, again, most likely with Jack that Annie came to Whitechapel in the latter half of 1884. Damn it. Uh, specifically, Dorset Street, which by the end of the 1890s would become known as the worst street in London.
0: Yeah, that's kind of the reputation I'm developing for it.
1: Yeah. It was, I'm pretty sure, the picture that we put up Uh, From the intro. Oh, yeah. Where we were talking about Spitalfields and Mm -hmm, Whitechapel. mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that picture was of Dorset Street. Well, that would make sense. So it is the notorious shitty street. Ugh. And the thing is, Annie was a fallen woman. But that didn't happen when she began an extramarital partnership. That happened when Annie failed her only job as a woman. Right, when she left her family. Yep. The female drunkard was an abomination of Victorian England. A woman was not to succumb to her worldly desires. She was not to embarrass herself in public with drunkenness. She was to care about her appearance and her reputation. And above all, she was to maintain her home, care for her children, and provide for her husband's needs. And in all of these things, Annie had already proven herself a failure when she left her marital home. (sighs) annie was a broken woman which was considered no different from a fallen woman so her adultery at this point was inconsequential
0: so that was just like whatever that part doesn't even matter
1: just like all right i guess i'm gonna hook up with a dude that's not my husband because i gotta and it's not like it's going to change the way people view me
0: right well fair enough it's not
1: yep and when annie came to Whitechapel, she left behind her whole life she became Mrs. Seavey or sometimes Dark Annie because of her dark brown hair. Dark Annie. That became like a very notorious thing and people reporting on her was that people called her Dark Annie. And she rarely, if ever, spoke of her past. Or if she ever did, she would write it off as jokes saying she had a son who was ill and in hospital and a daughter who joined the circus or was abroad in France. <laughs>
0: I don't like that she's just, like, making up a story. Like, just, no, it's fine. She had a lot of shame. Which, I guess, about... again, I understand how that could be the case. But, like, ugh, it just makes it sadder.
1: That's all. It is. It is super, super sad. Annie had one friend in Whitechapel that she provided scant details about the truth of her past. Amelia Palmer knew that Annie was separated from her husband. And that she had a mother and sisters, but she was not on friendly terms with them. Mm-hmm. According to Amelia, Annie was a respectable woman who never cursed and was a very clever and industrious little body when sober.
0: Very clever and industrious little body when sober. That's also yeah. kind of ouch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think it just meant that, like, when she was sober, she worked hard. Yeah.
3: You know, yeah, no, I And we'll yeah. kind of
1: get into that. So, <sighs> Annie didn't need to live in the slums of Whitechapel, even outside of like, she didn't want to stay with her family. Jack would have had work and made an income, and Annie had 10 shillings a week from John. Right. But instead of getting better housing or even necessities like food and coal, most of that money went to drink. Wow,
0: she was just like chugging it.
1: She was just always drunk. That is until December 1886, when the payments from John abruptly stopped.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So Annie inquired about John, likely from her brother in law. Mm-hmm. And learned that her estranged husband had retired six months prior due to failing health, and had recently fallen gravely ill. Oh well. Annie was so stricken by the news that she set off to see her husband on foot.
2: <sighs>
1: in the middle of winter, Annie covered over twenty-five miles in two days. That's ridiculous, Annie. Annie spent the night in Colnebrook Casual Ward. Mm-hmm. Which would have set her back a morning, although Colnbrook was known to apply the two-night rule more loosely than other workhouses. So maybe she could have
0: gotten
3: out?
1: Yeah. She might have explained, like, look, I'm trying to get to my dying husband before he dies. Could I just actually stay the night and not work a whole day yeah. for another night? <laughs> Unsure of John's new address, Annie asked after him at a pub, the Merry Wives of Windsor. The publican recalled seeing her, quote, a wretched looking woman having the appearance of a tramp. Annie told him that she had walked from London after her husband had stopped sending her 10 shillings a week because she heard that he was ill. And then I took this just directly from the book. She then hardened her expression and claimed she had come to Windsor to ascertain if the report was true and not merely an excuse for not sending her the money as usual.
0: Oh, harsh Annie.
1: <laughs> the publican pointed her in the right direction and she left. Honestly, I think it was that that like respectability thing. Yeah,
0: just like I'm not you know? here for
1: emotional reasons, I'm here just to do my due diligence. Yeah, like like she just <sighs> She 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 spent all of her life caring about what other people thought mm-hmm. about her, you know? Yeah. And she found John, and the reunion was short. She did not stay to see his passing. Honestly, she had probably already had her fill of death.
0: Well, yeah, probably.
1: It's possible that John also... Suffered from alcoholism as his cause of death was listed as cirrhosis of the liver, ascites, and dropsy. Mm. Although clearly it was not as disabling as his wife's alcoholism, as he was able to maintain work and literally no others complained of his drinking. Right. So he but was again, obviously maintaining. Women drinking at all was inherently problematic and right. men drinking was fine.
0: Right. Men drinking was fine and there was a lot of drinking in Victorian era England.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, when Annie returned to London, she cried to Amelia over the experience. So, however financially motivated her visit may have been, the loss of John severely wounded her. Mm. According to Amelia, after John's death, Annie seemed to give way altogether. Of
0: course she did.
1: She... I mean, I think I think that was just like one more fucking straw on her camel's back of dead people. Yeah, just too many.
0: It's way too many for one person.
1: Yeah. And shortly after, Jack Seavey left Annie, Mm. possibly due to Annie's loss of 10 shillings a week or possibly because he simply did not wish to be with a grieving widow.
0: That's kind of a dick move, but yeah, like I can see why. I am under the
1: impression that he was a bit of a dick. Yeah, sounds like it. Annie (laughs) was now completely unsupported. Mm -hmm. For a short while, she took up with a fellow hard drinker called Harry the Hawker, who also lived in the Dorset Street lodging houses, but this relationship didn't last long. By 1887, Annie began suffering from tuberculosis. Oh, so she has TB now, too. Yep. So let's talk about this for a second. So, according to the divisional surgeon of police, George Baxter Phillips, at the time of her death, Annie suffered from a disease of the lungs, which had become so severe that the membranes of her brain were diseased. Ooh. The kind of brain damage reported is consistent in some cases of tuberculosis. It's a bacterial infection, ultimately. It will spread throughout the rest of your body. Right. It just particularly attacks the lungs. Right, okay. Modern authors have taken the information about the diseased brain tissue Mm -hmm. and claimed Annie suffered from syphilis.
3: Oh. You know,
1: because she was a sex worker.
0: Right, but she wasn't really, The problem is, she?
1: she wasn't. She wasn't a fucking sex worker. But also, on top of that, for brain damage to occur, Annie would have had to contracted syphilis 10 to 30 years prior, when she was still a teenager or while she was still happily married.
0: Yeah, no thank you. And while
1: there's slim to none evidence that Annie was doing sex work near the end of her life, there is no evidence that she was doing sex work in those years. When she would have had to have contracted it. When she would have had to have contracted syphilis for her to have suffered from brain damage from syphilis by the time of her passing. So this is more of that, like... (sighs) Confirmation bias in Jack the Ripper murdered prostitutes.
0: Right, just oh, obviously she's a prostitute because she was murdered by Jack the Ripper. Yep, yep,
1: yep. And so they're like, you know, they're looking at these police reports or blah blah blah, something something, diseased tissue of the brain, and they don't see she had a disease of the lungs, which had become so severe that the membranes of her brain were diseased. They see oh, diseased brain tissue, and go, mmm, syphilis. That's a prostitute disease,
0: right? So drawing, like, offensive and incorrect conclusions.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just that confirmation bias that continues to take away the stories from these women.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's just... <laughs> the thing is, like, when we have evidence that they did sex work, we will tell you.
0: <laughs> right, but, but there's not
1: <laughs> But this was tuberculosis, you daft bitches.
0: You daft bitches. <laughs>
1: So as a now widowed, severely ill, both mentally and physically woman, Annie still worked hard to make an income, which is kind of what I was talking about, that industrious little body. Yeah, She would do crochet work, she would sell matches or flowers, and on Saturdays she'd go to the Stratford Market and sell anything she had. On occasion, she would beg for a few coins from her family. Mm-hmm. And they might also provide her with some clothes because the ragged life of a tramp is some suck. Yeah. But ultimately, she remained estranged from them, never sharing their a- her address, likely for fear that they would try to keep her from drinking. Mm. Addiction be hard. Addiction be real hard. This is... Man... So, so like, the Victorian England stuff is, like, Alex is mad at capitalism, Alex is mad at sexism, and Alex is mad at the stigma surrounding mental illness.
0: Well, yeah. Because everything was awful.
1: <laughs> everything was awful. But the thing is, like, the reason we're telling this story is because everything is still kind of awful.
0: Right. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be able to identify with it and, like, care about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Yeah. Addiction be bad. Hardtimes.com. Yes. So, it's possible that she had one family member with whom she was not entirely distant. Fontaine, likely outside the knowledge of his extended family or employers, also suffered from the same alcoholism that his father and sister suffered from. Well, that makes sense. That should be genetic. Yep. And also his family members. Yeah. Situation not so great. So he testified that he met with Annie on two occasions and lent her a few shillings, although they may have seen each other more times than he was willing to admit. Fontaine and Annie likely would have found solace with each other. With the rest of their family being super vigilant religious teetotalers, they would not judge each other, and they could even have a drink together without feeling shamed. Yeah, that's important. <laughs> like they would have from the rest of their family. So on September 7th, 1888, the five pence Annie procured from her relatives
0: most, most likely. likely
1: came from Fontaine.
0: Yeah, that makes
1: sense. Yeah. In the summer of 1888, Annie began a relationship with a man she'd known for the past two years, Edward Stanley. Usually called Ted or the pensioner.
0: Okay, so he's old.
1: Because he was old. He was uh mm-hmm. he was in his forties. Oh, okay. He was just a dude. He worked in a local brewery, and the two had something of a part-time cohabitation. Okay. So on Saturdays, Annie would wait for Ted, then they'd go to the pub together. They would stay together in a lodging house on Dorset Street called Crossinghams until Monday morning. And Ted would pay for Annie's food, drink, and lodging until Tuesday morning.
2: Okay, that's nice.
1: Presumably, the rest of the week, Annie would have to sleep rough. She mm. was unlikely to use the casual wards, as that would interfere with her drinking for two whole days. For two whole days, nah. And an alcoholic as severe as Annie was not likely to... nope. Yeah, not at all. As Annie's illness worsened, she became more and more reliant on Ted for her upkeep. Well, that makes sense. Which means that it was all but certain that she slept rough about half the week. Yeah. Annie and Ted were recognized as a couple at Crossing Hems. At some point, Annie purchased two brass rings that she wore on her left hand, a wedding ring and a keeper which was an engagement ring, to put on an air of marital respectability. There's that respectability thing again. Right, of course. Ted also spoke to the deputy keeper at the lodging house about his relationship with Annie. Uh, He was a jealous man who understood their relationship to be exclusive and asked the deputy keeper, Tim Donovan, to keep Annie from becoming involved with another man. And according to Donovan... Annie never shared another bed with a man under his roof. Okay. Which is, again, further, I'm pretty sure she wasn't a sex worker.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? That kind
1: of confirms it a lot. Yeah. Like, okay, sure, she could have been going out into the alleys, but, like, she was severely ill with tuberculosis. <laughs> she right, had a she's probably super, not. super jealous hubby, not hubby. And she was dedicated to the upkeep of their relationship in a hubby, not hubby kind of way. Yeah. Probably not a sex worker. (laughs) Probably not. The last week of Annie's life, she was gravely ill. She was really, really fucking sick. The afternoon of September 4th, uh, Tuesday, which would have been, you know, after she had just gotten out of her lodging house for the weekend and was looking Mm -hmm. forward to the rest of the week, sleeping rough. Uh, She ran into Amelia Palmer. According to Amelia, she was looking very pale. And Annie told her that she felt ill and might go to the infirmary. Then she didn't, there's no, nobody reported to seeing her between then and Friday, September 7th. Which was when Amelia saw her again looking just as unwell. Amelia asked if Annie would be selling her crochet work, to which Annie responded, I am too ill to do anything. When Amelia returned ten minutes later, she found Annie in the exact same place that she'd left her. She was just sitting there, sick as hell, absolutely dying from consumption. Annie told her friend, it's no use in my giving way, I must pull myself together and go and get some money or I shall have no lodgings.
0: Yeah, well, it's probably true.
1: Yeah, a lot of people use this as proof. Oh, she was a sex worker. She was going to go and get some fuck for some money for a bed, but she probably went to Fontaine, got some money from him. Right, that would make some it kind of all make sense.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: It honestly makes substantially more sense for that to be the case than for Annie to have been a sex worker. She was dying from TB. Yeah. (laughs) So it was common to find regular lodgers in the lodging house kitchen because it was communal who Mm -hmm. would not have the money to spend the night, but who were allowed to stay in the kitchen where they may hope to see a friend who might lend them a few pennies needed to pay their bed that night.
0: Right. Okay. That makes sense.
1: On Friday September 7th Annie was just such a lodger
2: mm-hmm.
1: she had spent the evening in Crossinghams and went out around the time that she ran into Amelia came back around midnight having managed to beg five pence from family, most likely Fontaine. However, with this five pence she asked a fellow lodger William Stevens to run and grab her a pint from the nearby pub
2: mm-hmm
1: After her drink with Stevens, she left for another pub, the Britannia. She then returned to Crossingham's at around 1.45 a.m. and ate some potatoes right before the night watchman came to do the DOS collecting and kick out anyone who came up short. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Annie went directly to Tim Donovan to plead for her regular bed. Annie specifically asked him to trust her. But he declined, saying, you can find money for your beer, and you can't find money for your bed. Unwilling to admit defeat, Annie responded, keep my bed for me, I shan't be long, before setting off toward Christchurch Spittlefields, a common sleeping spot for the homeless. Donovan did receive some public backlash for having a hand in Annie's death, but luckily for him the fact that Annie asked him to trust her didn't make it to the newspaper, just the police report.
2: Uh, well,
0: I mean, but I don't know. I can see how we talked about this earlier with the other lodging houses and everything. Like, it sucks, but at the same time, they were so limited in their resources, I can see why they'd be like, nope, sorry, can't do it.
1: Yeah, the thing is, like, Tim Donovan knew that Ted... Would be there the next day, paying for Annie's lodgings. He could have just been like, hey, Ted, your girl owes me four pence. Yeah, that's true. You know? I feel like... (sighs) It's complicated. Wow, that was our first it's complicated. (laughs) But... You can't blame him for her death, but it is one of those like, man, dude... You could have given her the bed. she's dying from TB.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it's that's four true. pence that's, and you know that's...
1: that her boyfriend is good for it.
0: Yeah, okay, fair enough. you know. Mm-hmm.
1: So Annie having spent several years in Whitechapel by this point and somewhat regularly sleeping rough would have been familiar with the best places the most inconspicuous and least traversed paths for finding a spot Mm. to sleep so annie would have intentionally gone to the yard adjacent to 29 hanbury street a three-story domicile with eight rooms and 17 lodgers she would have known about the gap between the house steps and the fence and would have been relieved to find it vacant Literally, shortly after Annie's death, another man was found sleeping rough in the exact same place Annie was found murdered. Well, good spot's a good spot. Good spot's a good spot. Annie's story is definitely the story that hurts me the most. Obviously, the death of her siblings and her father's during her youth was incredibly painful and tragic. And a lot of these women's stories have those kinds of events. But... Annie's alcoholism took everything from her. Everything she had left, everything that she had worked so hard to gain. And by the end of her life, she was already dying, severely ill from tuberculosis, and more willing to put her money to a drink than to a bed. Yeah. But even in that, she still had some pride. She wore those rings to appear married. And she tried to make an income in... You know, her own clever ways. Yeah. She wasn't a sex worker. (laughs) Yeah, you're totally right. Let's be real. All right. On September 8th or 9th, Annie's siblings, Emily, Georgina, Miriam, and Fontaine heard of Annie's passing. They refused to tell their mother as it would have devastated Ruth to know that the child she'd already lost to alcoholism had been taken away from her again and in mm-hmm. such a violent way. They also refused to tell Annie's two remaining children who her sisters took in after John's death. Mm. Fontaine, as the only man of the house would have been responsible for identifying his sister's body. Fontaine already carried the same illness that took his father and sister and seeing Annie like this pushed him over the edge. He stole money from his employer to buy drink and was dismissed at his job as a warehouse manager. His friends rallied to get him a new position, but he quickly stole money from his new employer and then abandoned his wife and two children.
2: Mm.
1: A week later, he turned himself in to the Gloucester police. At the bottom of his confession note, he wrote, Oh, my darling wife, it is all the cursed drink. For God's sake, don't let the children touch it. Ugh. Fountain was returned to London where he served 3 months hard labor at Millbank prison. After his release, he decided to start over and took his wife and children to settle in Texas. Hopefully, okay, the, then. the new start Hopefully that worked out for them. better. In 1889, Annie's sister Miriam sent a letter to the Pall Mall Gazette regarding her stance on temperance and her sister's story of alcoholism. She wrote, just before I was six years old, my father cut his throat, leaving my mother with five children, three girls older and one younger than myself. Miriam continued to tell how her sisters all came to sign the abstinence pledge, all but her eldest sister, Annie. She wrote, we tried to persuade the one given to drink to give it up. She was married and in a good position. Over and over again, she signed the pledge and tried to keep it. Over and over again, she was tempted and fell. Mm. That's heavy. And that is the end of Annie Chapman's story. Oh, poor Annie. And it is the saddest.
0: That is the saddest. I don't even know what to say at the end of that. Just like, well.
1: Yep. It's. Just- I guess it definitely
0: is just it shows how the these women meeting their end is such a societal thing and not necessarily like a... Uh, serial killer thing it really is they happened to be murdered but their lives were kind of over before that
1: (laughs) absolutely in the case of annie oh my god she was already dying from consumption she was such an alcoholic that she would rather buy beer than pay for her bed at midnight when she knew there was no way that she would make that money up yeah while dying from tb
0: I'm sure the dying from TB made the beer more important.
1: Fair. Let's be real. And, you know, she had lost most of her children. She had lost most of her siblings. She had lost her husband, her father. What Jack the Ripper took was the last breaths of Annie. But really what took Annie's life was the alcoholism.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: So. <sighs>
2: okay.
1: So that is the big suck. Sorry for the big suck. The next one will be okay. sad, as they all will mm-hmm. be. But I don't know. There's a little more. The ah, I think one of the things that makes Annie so sad is that she was a victim to her own illness. Yeah. You know, she was almost not even a player in her own story. She was a passive participant in it you know yeah the next Mm -hmm. woman at least (sighs) there's some there's some there's some big sad but there's also some like oh okay get it girl
0: (laughs) right you know and then the one
1: after that i know you're gonna love you're gonna love kate also sad as (laughs) per usual but you're gonna love kate good so that's it sorry annie's so sad this it's is okay. the saddest one we promise to be less sad not not sad but less sad after this point thank you for listening if you thank made you it all listening. the way to the end to the, of this congratulations you did big heart okay, <laughs> um something something follow us on twitter instagram whatever social media at palm pitch pod If you like us lots and lots and lots and lots and lots, we have a Patreon and a coffee also at Palm Pitch Pod, and we have gotten, we're, we're publishing like the stories and the discussions that get cut from episodes, and also I'm doing blooper reels, and at the toppity-top tier, you can get some merch. Actually, I think, I think after, after like the second tier, we'll send you stickers. Yeah. So, you know, hit us up. (laughs) Hit us up with your money. (laughs) I think that's all. I think that's it. I think that's all. All right. Okay. Love you. Bye. Love you. bye. Bye.